RPGs offer up hours worth of content, but what's there to do after the story? Although the genre has provided some of the most compelling lore and world building examples in the gaming scene to this day, it's tough to say these games are always that intriguing after the credits roll. So, in an era of squeezing games for all they're worth, how can games build on their same concepts following the final boss? Well, for our purposes today, we'll be taking a look at the boss answer to this question. So let's see how these three specific approaches build the post-game into something more than just grinding to max levels and loot. Hail you level 100 masters out there. I'm skipping the tutorial, this is Boss Battle Breakdown. A deep dive into the ins and outs of boss design. And hey, if this is your first time here, then use your full party on that subscribe for weekly insights into your favorite boss fights. Now, starting this topic, I wanted to take a look-see into a series very near and dear to my heart. Pokemon. Off the bat, anyone who's played one of these titles has likely come across this very issue of post-game content. In a lot of ways, a good post-game can make or break one of these titles. And I think it's a lot of the reason why the insane 16 gym, 2 region treasure trove of the second generation games is so widely remembered to this day. And that note culminates right at the top of Mount Silver with Red, giving us our first approach to post-game bosses which is really just higher difficulty foes. You see, a common trend of the franchise is that after achieving your mainline goal of conquering the Elite Four challenge and becoming the Pokemon League's champion, these games pack in an extra NPC figure that stands in as a true champion, if you will. Examples of this lie in Emerald's Bout with Steven Stone, the black and white set of games including rematches with Cynthia, and of course, the classic face-off with Red as mentioned earlier. While these can be just examined as necessary increases of the stats and team compositions compared to the game's standard difficulty curve, I think the way this series handles it builds past this. Sure, they're tough fights, with Red as the highest level NPC in all the games, yet their appearances hit a little deeper than that in my mind. Since each of these characters show up in some way, shape, or form in a previous title, Steven and Cynthia being champions, and Red being the embodiment of your character from Kanto, there's a where-are-they-now element that plays out in the story with rematching them. It shows a follow-up to how actions in the other games you played fall into a greater Pokemon narrative in the canon's real-world building. Including bosses like these hit on the two trademarks of RPGs reasonably well in my mind, number-based combat and lore. They give a chance to frame your progression, not only with your team in that respective title, but also along the greater Pokemon narrative, which I think fleshes out the post-game pretty nicely. And while there's more of a balance struck in Pokemon's model for after-story bosses, the Mario & Luigi set of RPGs drive right into the combat side in my mind. In more recent attempts of the series' installments, there's been a pattern of including these boss rush-style side modes into the games to refight defeated foes, with the so-called boss medley systems in games such as Dream Team and Paper Jam. You earn the chance to replay through each of your fights so that you can score either a new trophy or ranking. In the Paper Mario crossover, each battle will net you a certain amount of points depending on your performance, which will then tally up into a total at the end of the rush, crowning off at an S rank. To accomplish this, you bring in your stacks of knowledge and gain powers to finish off the job, which discovers some interesting consequences. In some cases, especially at the earlier bosses in a run, you can beat even their rematch state with a well-paced and properly executed trio attack, and in a battle quickly. These segments follow up more of a standard boss rush formula, in that they serve to get the player more of a power trip style encore to frame their accrued progress and skill from their time with the game. And in a game like Paper Jam, which was heavily marketed around the new combo attacks featuring all the three protagonists, I can see why it follows more of this combat fixation than even the Pokemon series' tough trainers. While I'll admit that I would have personally enjoyed seeing more of the personality and charm of these boss battles built upon instead of rehashed, I think the way these games handle their minigame boss rushes offers a fair amount of design, keeping me from not switching cartridges just yet. Taking a stab at our final approach for after credits bosses, we're switching gears over to Toby Fox's line of thought with his Undertale and Deltarune titles. And while we could kick off in a chronological order and discuss the 2015 game's entries of Kickstarter botting characters, So Sorry and Glide, 
I think Deltarune hit this concept best in my mind. For one, the unlocking process behind Jevil strikes me as way less cryptic and more thoughtfully designed than, say, running in a room for three minutes. And Deltarune doesn't have the same Kickstarter incentive to include these characters, but I think it's better to discuss Undertale's specifics in a different case. I'll leave everyone else on the internet to address the so-sorry controversy. And with that out of our way, let's dive into Jebel. Now this character, like the other secret bosses in Fox's catalog, can be fought before encountering the credits. But I'd argue that there's a lower likelihood of encountering this bonus concept on a first run, as most players are just engrossed in the main story, and as such, will experience these bosses post-initial run. So, searching for this boss's unlock route stems from a more significant interest in the world building and design is to explore every nook and cranny for details, and in this case, discover the keys for his jail cell in the process. Moreover, Jevil's inclusion here builds the lore of the Darkner world, with the key hunt outlining his descent into madness. And finally, his fight reverberating the concept this is all a game, and mirroring the central theme of Deltarune, your choices don't matter. And offering up a nice bit of challenge, but not too much, considering the higher chance they'll be on a new run when you take him on. You then fight this new bit of content to explore the ever-elusive knight's impact on the world, which in turn offers up implications for the future chapters. All of this, the world building, the challenge, the side story hunt, and theorizing material, it all builds up into delivering an excellent reason for players of the main game to come back and experience this with all their questions from the main story. So if we take all these post-game bosses in sum, and try to think about which one does it best for RPGs, I think they each tackle it in a way that best suits their systems. And there are arguments to be made that each example is the best approach for post-game content in their own way. But if you ask me my thoughts, I do believe that the way that Toby Fox tackles the post-game content of his games is exceptional. And the way he employs bosses after the credits is sure to keep me coming back. At least until chapter 2.